so much for rejoining us at Out of the Main. I am one of your co-hosts, Tom Nixon, and my other co-host is here, or my only co-host, John, that's you. Question, do you think we're going beast mode today? Oh my gosh, that was a, such a great video. I don't know if he knows about that, but yes, we're going to sail uh, another trip around Cape Horn, are we not? <laughs> we are. We, you remembered all the puns from before. I do. Well, we are very excited because we have a guest on today, and the uh, silliness that we're referring to was a prior episode we did about the genius that is Jerry Hay, and today we are talking to the genius that Jer- that is Jerry Hay. Welcome, everyone, to Out of the Main. Jerry Hay. Jerry, welcome so much. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if your ears have been burning for the last three to five years, but if they are, have been, yeah. it's probably because us. Your name has probably been evoked uh, hundreds oh my of gosh, times yeah. on this podcast. So. Yeah, we've we've made a bunch of nicknames that I don't know if they're all appropriate or, or what, but uh, <sighs> what do you got? The, the Say Hey Kids, the Jerry Hay and the Boys. We've got, uh, I don't know. We've made up nicknames for you because we talk about you so much. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> Yeah, so um, we did actually, uh, I don't know if you were aware of this, but we did a whole episode uh, devoted to your sort of Yacht Rock-centered career, Um, and we, a number of times we had questions in our head, John, we're like, what do you think the approach was there? And uh, we thought, well, maybe someday we could get Jerry on to talk about it, and here we are. Yeah, it's a little bit different because our focus, when we got into Yacht Rock, we didn't know where it was going to take us, but our focus ended up being really drilling down in on the uh, the session musicians, you know, what their process was. We've talked to like Marty Walsh and Jay Graydon, and what are you presented with when you're called in on a session? This is obviously a bit different, because not only are you called in as a session player, but you're also an arranger. And... uh Eventually, I want to get to how you got started in that and how that changed as you sort of established yourself. But let's go back to the very beginning. So, uh, Sea Wind, Sea Wind Horns, if you can give us a little background on that. Uh, so, I uh, went to school, a college at Indiana University, and uh, met uh, trumpet player Larry Hall. And he and I became best friends immediately and great trumpet player and you know kind of uh led me down the right path of trumpet at school he happened to be two years older than i was then and he left school and went to hawaii and then called me up one day uh kind of in the middle of a lesson and uh said do you want to come over to hawaii we need that that we're doing some work here and we need more trumpet players over here. And I said, yeah, okay. Hawaii and work. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So in addition to me, there was Kim Hutchcroft who plays saxophone in Sea Wind and Larry Williams, uh, who plays keyboard and sax in Sea Wind and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, They were also at Indiana. They came over to Hawaii. So we started in Hawaii in 71 playing together. We played, we formed a a band just to play what we wanted to play on the weekends. And we played freebies and parks and around and sort of the beginning of Sea Wind. Gary Grant, sort of the other trumpet player, was sort of involved in that. And... uh, so it just kind of evolved from there and see when formed because um, we wanted to try doing some more of our uh, own music and and play more as a group. 
And that was music to make music. So you were making your living how during that time doing sessions or? Well, no, there were no sessions per se in Hawaii, uh, but there were like Vegas type shows. Okay. So, you know, we played, I don't know, six months of Vegas type shows. And then we, the band would play like six months of in, in a real small club. You know, not making any money, but kind of perfecting the craft. Been living in Hawaii, so that doesn't that's <laughs> horrible. And, and yeah, that, it was it was just a, a great move going over there, and just you know, was a beach, and then uh, band see wind rehearsal, uh, play the gig, go home sleep, then repeat. You know, so it was nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no. So then, if as long as we're um, Starting with the history, let's maybe fast forward to 1976, where you find your way to L.A. How does that happen, and where does the uh, story go from there? We're playing in, the Sea Wind is playing in clubs over there, and when guys from L.A., session musicians from L.A. would, like, be going to Japan, and they would stop over in Hawaii, and they would come and hear us. But we had a lot of people come and hear us. Uh, Jeff Carl sat in. Uh, uh, Neil Schoen, uh, Abraham Laboriel, uh, Harvey Mason Jr., uh, uh, Harvey Mason Sr. heard us play, said, well, you guys need to move to L.A. and I'll see what I can do to, you know, try to get a record deal so that can, we can make that happen. And he did. And he was our producer on our first two records. Uh, so that's why we moved to L.A. in 76. And so you're in L.A. as pursuing a career as sea wind as sea wind right okay and then at what point i think it's maybe quincy maybe becomes aware of you or what point do you then be um yeah. identified as wait a minute we got to bring these guys on as the well, cats let me, let, let me be, before leading into that so as sea wind you obviously are the horn uh, lead are you the lead trumpet player or the only trumpet oh the only trumpet player at the time so you're doing the arrangements at that time and that's part of the craft that you're developing uh, or is it more uh, kind of everybody figures it out? No, well, I, for the most part, I was doing it. Uh, it. It kind of evolved from when we were first starting out, we were playing top 40 stuff. I would have to take the horn parts off the record. Uh, so it, it kind of evolved from that. So I wondered if being this leader ranger guy, which obviously you got known for, and eventually we'll get to the Tom's question about Quincy, this being an arranger thing was – not something necessarily in your DNA early. It kind of developed as you your career developed. Yeah, never. It, it's you know I, I didn't ever study it or anything. It just okay sort of happened because when when we moved to LA, Seawin was playing at the Baked Potato for I don't know. We played one or two nights a week for a couple of years. People would come in to hear us, and they would come up to me and say. You know, we want to have you guys, the horns, come in and play on our record. Okay, who's gonna do the arranging? Well, you are. Okay, so mm. it 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 just kind of okay, you know, evolved into that. Yeah, because some of the arrangements you do, I f they're so outrageous. They feel like they break the rules, and so maybe that's good that you didn't have the schooling in it. So going to Tom's question about Quincy. So we we were, as I said, playing at the baked potato, and as Quincy always does, he's somehow finds the new talent before anybody else. And he called me up. We'd only been in town 
I don't know, three, four months. Phone rings at home. Who knows how he got my phone number? But, you know, he calls it, Jerry, this is Quincy Jones. I want you to come in and play on a record. <laughs> Great. You, know? you hung up and said, no way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, it's a wrong number. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, and he said, and I want you to do the chart too. Okay. I, I don't know how any of that happened, but, you know, I did it. We It wasn't much, but, you know, it was that first foot in the door. And he liked it. So, you know, that was kind of the beginning. Did you have time to work up the chart or do you just kind of have to do it on the fly? Okay, see you tomorrow. Have a chart with you. Uh, no, you know, I've done that a lot. But yeah. this this is, he sent me, you know, back then in the day, it was a cassette. Send me a cassette of the track and do your thing. And so, you know, I went in. <laughs> Quincy said, okay, you know, you get your guys. I'd like to have Snooky Young play with you. <laughs> you know, Snooky's <laughs> like my hero, lead trumpet player, you know, so in, in town and the first big session that I do is with Snooky Young. So, wow. Yeah, it's great. Wow. Well, speaking of Quincy and cassettes, I, I have to play something. Hopefully I can play this down the line so this will work for any uh, YouTube audience. But there's this um, file that's made its way around the web quite a bit, and somebody sent this to me. And it goes back to your days of Quincy with uh, Michael Jackson. So I want to play this for you and see if you can give us any background on what this is. So... That obviously sounds like a, a quick cassette sort of edit. Uh, what can you tell us about that? So we, we, you know, this working day and night, Michael. Yeah, and right. Um, so you know, my vision was okay. Working day and night, it's got to be busy. How can I? What? How can mm -hmm. I do that? And make it busy. So if you listen to the beginning of the song. Michael does some like mouth percussion stuff and he goes, Ch -ch 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 -ch. so, okay, that's kind of cool. So that became in my part. So then I took that part and the other side is every other 16th note. It, like the saxes that are below that. It's yes. well, it's saxes and trumpets. It's, Okay. It's all unison on on the da -da 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 -da, that part, and then the other part is <laughs> like rhythm kind of horns playing that, and then it that's how it gets that. So we recorded, we tried recording to the the track to do that. It's very difficult to make it each part line up so that it yeah. Um. So. We played it for a few times, you know, one track, and then tried to, to play the other part, and it wasn't ever really <laughs> lining up right. You know, mm, just was, yeah. wasn't feeling right. So we played to drums only. Oh. JR, you know, uh -huh. rock solid. Yes. So we played to him um, drums on our phones only. 
to make sure the time was right. So that's the only way you can get that to line up so that it's ticket, 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 ticket. You still did it as two separate parts, like the, yeah, the two, one part. Yeah, two, okay. two separate parts. And the cassette was what? A way to so, sort of show Quincy your idea? No, the cassette is so we recorded the tune. You know, we must have listened to it like 10 times. Quincy loved it. And so I went to Bruce, the engineer, and I said, any, ch yeah. any chance of getting a uh, copy of this and solo up the horns? Oh, okay. So he said, sure. And so there, there are, I think there are four or five different ways that he broke it down. One time with a hand claps and one time the one part starts out. And so... That's what that's what that's a cassette from the very session. <laughs> wow. There's a cat online that put that arrangement back together one horn at a time on YouTube and shows how I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I may have. Uh, but it's you know, with Pro Tools now, that's much easier to do. Well that's why we marvel. That was kind of kind of be my question yeah. is we marvel oh, how, you know, late seventies, early eighties, how tight these parts are. Almost to the point, you know, when I was younger, I think in the back of my mind, I just figured that was always just kind of horns, like synth horns on the Thriller album. I mean, they can't be real. <laughs> Nobody can do that. Nobody can play <laughs> like that. I know. So, A, the Marvel is just, it's a miracle to behold. But the question is, how many takes would it take a group to get a horn track that was usable by Quincy? Without any bleed and anyone's early or nobody's late, without Pro Tools, of course. Um, it it was I was basically in charge of kind of making sure we were together and everything was in tune and in time and you know besides the fact that whether Quincy likes it or Michael likes it or you know, um, so yeah, you got to like it first, right? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know it. The the tightness, I guess, is kind of on me because I would if it wasn't good enough, I'd want to do it again. You know, some sometimes, of course, you know, Bruce would say, you know, we I need another. You guys need another one, or Quincy would say, you know, yeah, let's do that again, or or you know, he'd have another idea of something. But generally, it was you know, it was my doing to make sure that we were good enough. Well, that's such a common thread in so many of the arrangements that we have found from you is how you your approach is obviously tight from a performance perspective. But as an arranger and an idea, there's so much tight staccato, very difficult, like precise articulations, and you're screaming, whoever is the screamer up top. But it's so aggressive. Your approach is so easy to recognize because... It's got this staccato, it's got this tight, it's got this aggressiveness, like it wants to blow your hair back. Who is, so it's a two-part question, who is the screamer in the group? And, and um, Easy. Is there any um, uh, influence from Maynard Ferguson in your uh, repertoire? That's not where I thought the question was going. Interesting. Okay. Um, I did listen to Maynard Ferguson, um, but, you know, it was never really my style. Uh, mm. and depending on what we're doing, what the song is. Uh, Gary Grant was on most everything I did. Um, he plays some, I play some. With the Duro stuff, there were three trumpets Chuck Finley played. He plays some, I play Gary some, plays some. Mm -hmm. So it's, 
you know, we're throwing it around. Uh, who's, you know, it's, I'll play it. And then who's ever next plays the next one. So it wasn't like, you know, okay, you got this, you know, you're doing all of this one with just whatever came up. Okay. So there was no specific first trumpet in the gang. Were you guys hired as a gang or was it like you were hired, given the job to arrange, and then the expectation was you would contract these other guys? Yeah, they called me to arrange and I would, it, it got to the point where I said, these are the guys that we're doing yeah. or I'm not going to do it, you know, because it just, one, we'd been playing since Hawaii, you know, Gary and I, Larry Williams and Kim Hutchcroft, and then Bill Reichenbach, who was playing trombone on most everything yeah. that I did, uh, you know, met him early on when we first moved here, and the guy can play anything, uh, hmm. great musician. So, you know, I just said, if we can't, if I can't have these guys, I don't, I'm not interested. Yeah, and the tightness comes from having played together a lot, and the, the intonation, and everybody gets. So you mentioned Bill. Um, I, t I know, Tom, I need to go off track here for a second because I had this thing twice so far in our show. We have marveled at, as you mentioned, some of the Giroux stuff. We have absolutely marveled at what you did with Giroux's Love is Real. It was in our, we did a list of top 10 solos, not guitar, and I presented that one as a scat solo. And then when we talked to Jay Graydon, we asked him questions about how this went together, and he told us about how. Al would do the scat first, and then Jay took the selects and built a comp out of that. And then I want to play this real quick so that people on the YouTube uh, devices can hear it. But then I, I kind of want to hear about how this went about, because it's a little bit different for you. It's got the muted trumpet. He tells us that Bill Reichenbach was heavily involved. I'm going to play it, and then I'll let you kind of give us the play-by-play -play after the fact. So that was, uh, the session was with myself, Chuck Finley, and Bill Reichenbach. That was the first of the Graydon productions that we had done. Uh, and so I just, you know, I, I heard this solo and it's like, you know, okay, let me just take that off and see if Jay likes us playing along with that. So it's, and and it's kind of early on in my writing days and that was a hand written out <laughs> solo of like my chicken scratching so you know and it's a lot of inflections and a lot of yeah like phrasing and a whole the whole gamut of phrasing trumpet playing is in that solo you, you, Did Bill Reichenbach play a trumpet on that or something like that? Jay said something to the regard that he had the ability to do those difficult articulations. I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. So, mm. so, uh, so I brought it in. I said, Jay, I wrote out the solo. He says, but you know, maybe do it in harmon mutes. 
He says, well, let me hear it. So I got this, you know, handwritten pencil chicken scratching part of that solo. And Chuck Finley and I, that's, we're both playing it and it's doubled uh, on the trumpet. So there's actually four trumpets in Harmon Mutes playing that. All with mutes. Okay. All Harmon Mutes. And Chuck basically played it perfect reading it down. It was wow. which one is the Harmon mute? I don't want, I'm sorry to break in. Which one is, is that like, the, my, like Miles Davis mute, sort of? You okay, know? yes, okay. Um, so yeah, Chuck, Chuck was amazing on that. Uh, I mean, besides the fact that he's reading my horrible writing and <laughs> you know, having to play this really intense solo with all of these you know, articulations, you know, this, I mean, it the, that because I knew it, I could play it. I bet we didn't spend more than 10 minutes on that. Wow. Yeah, oh that, it, it was crazy. <laughs> so back to Bill. So okay. we were, uh, we had done a rough take of a chart just so Jay can hear, you know, where I'm, where I'm taking it. Not this chart necessarily, but it, maybe distracted, maybe. So we we played it down, rough mistakes and everything. And I went in with Jay, you know, we're talking about it. And he hears trumpet and trombone out in the studio playing. And they're playing some, I don't know, some one of the licks or something from the record they were playing. And Jay goes, oh, that sounds awesome. And I said, yeah, that's Chuck playing trombone and Bill playing trumpet. Whoa. Whoa, so they flipped. I got you. Chuck plays great trombone, and Bill can play any brass instrument known to man. Yeah, that's what Jay said. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so that might be an example of what we referred to at the outset of, of Jerry Hay Beast Mode. Um, there is a video, isn't there, John, going around that says, is it labeled Jerry Hey, Beast Mode? Well, yeah, it's a YouTube thing, and it, he strings together. It's a guy that it's audio, but he um, on YouTube strings together what he thinks are some of your most outrageous moments. He's got like wild women from Wongo right. in there from the tubes and but crazy stuff. The man. flip side to of that, maybe not flip side, but maybe counterpart complimentary, is we also marvel at your ability, or we're going to find out whose ability to write these counter melodies that really oh, yeah. establish a song. For example, Turn Your Love Around by George Benson. And mm -hmm. we've heard the famous stories about how the song was written. We won't get into all that crap. Uh, <clears throat> but <laughs> oh, my, I'm dying to know, knowing that story, you know, Jay comes up with this hook in this moment of inspiration, Turn Your Love Around. Space. I can show you how to me. Yeah. There's like nothing to it until the horn parts put in. You gotta sing the horn parts. Turn your love around. Don't you turn me down. I can show. So how did that get written? How did that get developed? And what was your role in that? Uh, it's another good story with Jay that we, um, he gave me that, the tune, 
you know, the, the track of the tune, you know, come up with a horn part. And Jay spent a lot of time, he's very meticulous on his guitar parts, making sure that the part is really great and in time and, you know, everything. So I come in and I said, I, Jay, I think I, I got a pretty good part for the chorus. <laughs> he goes, what is it? And I sang it to him. And he goes, you're kidding. He said, that's almost verbatim what his guitar no part was. Way. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So, and the horns won out. Perfect. Oh, man. I mean, it, it is. We say it's one of those songs you absolutely cannot sing the chorus without singing the horns. And the same was true with, uh, what was the other song from that album that he did? Uh, George Benson's uh, Never Give Up on a Good Thing. Never give up on a good thing. Remember what you should have to do. Oh, never give up on a good thing. Your love is what you got. You got. You cannot sing the chorus without your horn part. Oh, thank you. That That's one of the things that I try to do. I, I always say that I look at, if you can have the name of the chorus followed by the horns so that people associate the horns with the tune. Like, all you need is love. You know, that, that's the perfect example for me. Or... In the worst case scenario is sweet Caroline, <laughs> ba, 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 ba. you know, yeah, yeah. as bad as that is, uh, yeah, it's great because, you know, that's, that's the hook and that, and then you got horns, you know, horns embedded in people's mind. So that's one thing that I try to do is associate the horns with the Well, we're not exactly following the chronology in this two-part uh, episode with Jerry Hay, although kind of close to it. So starting with Sea Wind, right, and making our way up to and through the Jero and Benson eras. Yeah, I think there's still a little bit of meat left on the bone, as they say. Yes, there um, is. I did want to pause and just kind of picture that um, so, so many of these artists talk about playing and, and being discovered at the Baked Potato that tiny little <laughs> club there in LA. I don't know if you've ever looked it up and seen pictures of it. It is so tiny. The stage is tiny. You're cramped. The sound in it is terrible, but it is legendary for these guys to play in. It really is. Yeah. I think uh, Mark Jordan also made a reference to the playing the baked potato. Yeah. Percaro and Luke have talked about it all the time. Greg Matheson tells all kinds of stories online about his days at the baked potato. Yep. Mm, I'm getting hungry. We better get to this lightning round. Uh, <laughs> you know, sour cream out. Right? I am Irish. I like me a good potato. <laughs> All right. Shall we segue? Strike it. It's not exactly the sound effect you would use for a segue now that I think about it. It's kind of abrupt. No, but it does grab your attention. It so does. Well, that's good. All right. Well, how are you going to grab our attention? Uh, what have you found at sea? Found at sea. I, um, I just am so enamored with jerry's arrangements obviously so i want to focus on a few of those and i'm going to go right in the pocket here this is uh during the foster era 1980 with earth wind and fire and man just check out this track pride from the album faces
that, that's a smoker there. Fire. Yeah. What I I love how tight the horn section's able to stick with the snare drum on those syncopations. Isn't it amazing? Oh, I, it's like you feel like it's one horn, even though you know it's at least four, probably double tracked. And so that that's the magic of what Jerry did. It is lo- unlike any other in his. I mean, other people can play tight, but he forced those guys and himself into playing something that is the difficulty level is so high and the tightness level required to do that is so high. And then in the upper range, which is harder and harder to play, you know, precisely. And he just pushed the limits of what a horn can do. Yep. Well, come back for part two where I will abase myself uh, in that very mode there when we talk about Thriller. Okay. Remember I say, I always, when I was little, thought that could have just been... Dot, Synth dot, horns? Dot. Oh, now you ruined it. <laughs> now, now no one's got to come back. Oh, All right. okay. All right. Well, I say other things, too, that are clever and fun and unique. So yeah, come back do. for part two. All right. Uh, All right. What have I found at CU Ask? What do you you found at CU have asked? Thank you for asking. Um, this is a discovery. Um, so are you familiar with Heat? So they're not the Swedish group Heat, but Heat um, 1980. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, well, they came out with a new song in 2023, which mm-hmm, maybe you mm-hmm. saw. Um, yep. And that is what I found at sea because it's got some yacht vibes to it. Um, it's called Put Your Trust in Love. And this is with Horn Engine, which is another nickname you might use for Jerry Hay. The interesting yeah Mm -hmm. so what i i knew i loved it what i didn't know about it was that the song was actually based on or inspired by a song from that 1980 album uh Mm -hmm. their debut album on mca and they call it a two-stepper i don't know why uh but (laughs) this song is actually a buried treasure because it's got all the goods as the aforementioned mr grady would like to say yep um, and this is called This Love That We Found. You know, my takeaway is a little bit of a Manhattan transfer hmm. in that. Yeah, the Funny. vocal assembly. Yeah. I was thinking Earth, Wind, and Fire, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, both of which feature horns, so that's why it's semi- <laughs> somewhat relevant. I'm yeah. going to try to shoehorn, right. ding, ding, shoehorn oh. all of my lightning around into uh, <laughs> the theme today. All right. What okay. do you have as a buried treasure? I, I'm going back to the uh, same album, Faces, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, the song I'm going to play is Back on the Road, and we are going to eventually listen to the solo. The solo is credited to Luke Ather, and it's full-on Luke. But I'm trying to figure out what is going on in this intro, because if it's uncredited, but if you were to guess, who might you say this sounds like?
think that's Luger's. <laughs> is uh, Eddie Van Halen uh, buried treasure on that song? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I almost heard a little of uh, Boston, too. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, all right, let's hear the solo. So Luke giving us some of the uh, uh, running with the night vibe on that <laughs> yeah. tune, man. So you're saying that was probably take zero, huh? Could be. Yeah. Probably not. If Foster was producing or if he was even in the building, there's no way that <laughs> yeah. take zero was <laughs> getting by. Yeah, no such thing. It could have been take zero, but there was also 30 other ones at the... Uh, yes, truth. All right. Very nice. Very nice. Oh, so Bear, that was your buried treasure? Yeah, so I guess that means I get to go off the map, snake draft style, right? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Jerry Hay did an arrangement for Dirty Loops, and this is 2014. The album is called Loopified, and I'm just going to go to the end of this one because this is just, this is beast mode. Here we go. This is Jerry Hay, beast mode. Yes. <laughs> and the pace in that. Jeez. That is beast mode. Um, Everybody we keep... went beast mode on that. Every player in the band was going beast mode. Okay, I'm glad you said so, because uh, okay. I want you to put a pin in that for next week. That's a good reason to come back to uh, episode two. Right. My off the map will be a there mirror image to this off the map. Okay. All right. Uh, beast mode. So, uh, my off the map is not beast mode. Uh, I made a discovery this week, not this week, but recently, when uh, Jacob Collier, whose name somehow manages to come up an awful lot on a Yacht Rock podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his new collab features Michael McDonald. Oh. And the band Lawrence. I did not know who <laughs> Lawrence was. I did, but I did not know about this tune. Oh, what a happy discovery this is. At least some yeah. of their albums are just top-notch. Um, in the sort of Yachty realm, not Yacht Rock, but certainly close enough to be off the map, features some good horns. Uh, yeah. That uh, it, This is kind of why I'm bringing it in, because yeah. the modern artists, I mean, Jerry Hay has left a legacy that artists to this day, I think, whether they're specifically trying to emulate it or just by osmosis have just... Yeah, Whatever. Yeah, they're definitely using it even if they don't know where it came from. Exactly. Yeah. So this has got some palm mutes and some roads. This is off their 2017 album, Lawrence's uh, Breakfast. The song is called Do You Wanna Do Nothing With Me? chords for some young young chitlins man they know their chords you know what's cool about lawrence go back and listen you're exactly right so this is the assignment to the listeners they will take a very simple progression like one four one four one four but they'll go one four one four one like maybe add nine to the four or something they put all these little interesting interlude chords that kind of keep you guessing it's so cleverly done and she can sing man uh, yeah. there, there's some stuff on the first album Woo. Yeah. Fire. Woo yeah. doggy. Yep. All right. Well, you know what that means. 
I do remember how to do it this time. We'll see. Okay, here we go. Ahoy! Ahoy!